0: The scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15-27. through 27. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there, there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. "'If you will not,' said Naaman, "'please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, "'for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. "'But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. "'When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, "'and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also.'" When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them. And then tied up the two talons of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away, and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi? Elisha asked. Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maid servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and he was leprous, as white as snow. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stevo, for reading.
1: Can I I say Stevo in public? Is that okay? Uh, If y'all don't know uh, Stevo and Kendra and their kids, Judah and Karis, get to know them. They're a uh, really fun family. Jamie and I and Elliot and Joanna have enjoyed getting to know them. They moved to Portsmouth a year, give or take, ago and have been worshiping with us for a number of months now. Pray with me, if you would, as we unfold the scriptures. Uh, Lord, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Let this not be just something that skims off the surface like a, a smooth stone against a flat lake, but, but would your words sink deeply into our hearts and change us, transform us through your word, through your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're thinking about uh, the seven deadly sins this Lent season. Lent is the season that leads up to Easter, and we're spending Lent thinking about seven uh, deadly sins. Now, there's, uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that actually says there are seven deadly sins, um, as though, you know, these seven are deadly, and then the other ones, are, they're not, not as big a deal. Uh, the list itself is a product of, of church tradition, hundreds and hundreds of years of church tradition. And there is a danger... To thinking about it in this category, which is that when we think of deadly sins, that implies that there are not so deadly sins. Uh, That's not really the case. In fact, all sin, as we're going to see today, is deadly. But the list is helpful because if, if we use it properly, it can help us to really start peeling away the surface layers of what's going on in our life and to probe our hearts at a more fundamental level. See a lot of people think that being a Christian just means being virtuous or being moral or behaving. It means you know, if if I'm just moral enough, if I'm just a good enough person, then God will somehow approve of me or he'll think I was good enough. Or or you remember those old fashioned scales and you know you weigh you put something on one side and something on the other and whatever side is heavier, that side, you know, Falls because it's perfectly balanced. And so we think if if my good deeds can just if I can pile up more good deeds than bad deeds on the scale, then it'll tip and then I'll be okay. But actually thinking about sin, we don't like to think about sin, I know, but when we think about sin in this kind of a careful way, it will show us that in fact you do not become a Christian by being moral. You become moral because you're a Christian. It flips that assumption on its head, and it's so important. It can be subtle, but it is so important. You're not a Christian because of your virtue. And we're going to see throughout this series that each of the deadly sins is accompanied by a virtue. But you don't become a Christian because you have put on this virtue. In fact, your virtue starts to grow because you're a Christian, which means this, that the source or the cause of your Christian faith, has to come from somewhere other than your behavior. It comes from somewhere other than your virtue or your morality. That's our premise in this series. So as much as we don't like to think about sin, I know, uh, the more carefully we think about it, the more God actually wants to use it to draw us closer to himself. That's our goal. There's a a great Puritan author about 400 years ago named Thomas Brooks. Here's what he said about it. He says, Our enemy will bait our hook. Think of fishing. Our enemy will bait our hook with anything we find desirable. He will gladly give us money, power, pleasure, fame, fortune, and relationships. Satan's goal for us is to take the bait without seeing the hook. And once the hook is in our mouth, he pulls hard on the line and reels us in. See, if we never think about sin, if we find ourselves never bothering to realize that there might be a hook inside that juicy-looking bait, and we bite, and we bite hard, and Satan reels us in. So this morning, uh, we're actually going to combine two because there are seven deadly sins in this traditional list and there's really only six Sundays of Lent. I guess I could have done one of the deadly sins on Easter Sunday, but that, didn't, uh, that would have been a real downer. So we're going to combine two this morning that are related. Uh, we're going to combine lust and gluttony this morning. Now, I was telling one of, one of you, one of our members this morning or earlier this week, I said, this, this week I'm preaching on lust and gluttony. And he said, ah, my two favorites. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> and we're using a story that actually doesn't sound like it's about lust or gluttony. But I'll show you how it is. Let me just give you a little bit of backstory because uh, unless you're up to date on your, on your ancient Jewish history, some of these characters may be new. There are really three people we need to know about. First, there's a man named Naaman. He's a general, a military general, a Syrian Syrians are not Jews. We don't have to get into it, but just know they're not Jews and they're not God's people. There's Elisha. Elisha is one of Israel's prophets, so he's one of their great leaders. And there's a man named Gehazi. Gehazi is Elisha's servant. Now, earlier in the story, before Steve picked up this morning, Elisha had healed Naaman of leprosy. Naaman had leprosy, which is a terrible skin disease, and Elisha had healed him. And the story picked up, or at least the reading picked up, when Naaman is so overcome with gratitude that he wants to give Elisha a gift as thanks for healing him. Now, by the way, this is kind of a side note, but it's important to note because this this shows us something of the heart of God. It's worth noting that Elisha goes out of his way to heal a non-Jew. God's heart is not just for his people. But he intends for his people to be agents of healing in the whole world. And that's here. It's a little subtle, but it's right there, clear as day. So Elisha has healed Naaman. Naaman wants to give him a reward, and Elisha, for whatever reason, says, you know, don't, don't bother. I don't need it. I don't need it. And it's not that it would have been wrong for him to. I, I, there's nothing that indicates. He just, he just chooses not to. And so Gehazi, as you see, uh, goes behind Elisha's back, goes doubles back to Naaman and says, well, he, the guy wants to give a gift and Elisha didn't want it, so I may as well. And so he, he basically says Elisha's changed his mind and Naaman gives him what in today's terms would be about $50,000 worth of silver and a couple of sets of clothes. And clothes, by the way, by, in that time, especially coming from uh, a prominent person like a military general would have been a very nice set. Imagine like a... Um, I don't know, like a custom tailored suit or something like that. Nice, not just, you know, whatever off the rack at the store. And Elisha catches Gehazi. I don't really need to write, the story was pretty clear, but he catches Gehazi. That's one of my favorite parts where he goes, so this is like a parent who's caught their kid, you know, and and the parent knows they've caught their kid, but the kid maybe doesn't realize it. And he goes, where have you been? And and Gehazi goes, nowhere. (laughs) I haven't been anywhere. And Elisha catches him and and he says this key line at the end, and this is, this is what's really going to springboard us into thinking about these seemingly unrelated topics, lust and gluttony. He says, not only, I'm paraphrasing, not only will Naaman's silver become yours, and it's worth noting that Elisha actually doesn't seem to take the silver away from his servant. He gets to keep it. Not only will Naaman's, or will, yeah Naaman's silver become yours, but his leprosy will become yours. Now, you might be thinking, okay, if we're thinking about seven deadly sins, and if you have some aware of them, this sounds more like greed than, than lust or gluttony, and you could make that case, but really all three, greed, lust, and gluttony, are all about our appetites and our desires. So this morning, we're really thinking about appetites and desires. In other words, what, what do you hunger for in life? What do you crave? What do you want more than anything else in light in life? In both Greek and Hebrew, the same word that can be used for for lust, it's just a a word that means desire. It's just you really, really want something. It's not just a shallow desire. Like a shallow desire is how I feel most days, especially in the summer, which is I could really go for a hot dog right now. Like it's not something that just doesn't really, like as much as I love hot dogs, I don't don't really need hot dogs, and I know that, and hope I don't have a lot of self-awareness, but enough self-awareness. No, this is like a deep, a defining like i am not complete and i'm not whole until i have this thing it's it, in fact it's a desire that that ends up controlling you so even when we think about lust we realize That the common connotation of lust is that it's just something that's sexual, but it's in fact much more than that. It's much broader than that. It can mean any craving or desire that controls you. It could be a craving for reputation. You want people to respect you and to think good things when your name comes up in conversation. It could be a passion for any sort of pleasure. That could be physical pleasure, that could be material or comfort or ease or leisure. We can lust after a certain lifestyle. We can be passionate about gaining a certain number of followers or growing a brand. You see, pastors can lust after church growth and at any means or by any means necessary, do what it takes to grow a church. And I have to guard my own own soul against that. It's, uh, lust is just any overwhelming desire. And in fact, more than half the times we see the word used in the New Testament, it's used in a positive sense. Jesus, in Luke 22, he tells his disciples, I have eagerly desired, I have longed Almost, dare I say, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's the exact same word in Greek. So desire itself is not necessarily evil. We all know that, right? We, we also desire many good, we want many good things. We want our children to succeed and do well and, and we want, right? We, so what are we talking about? We get a clue in James one. Uh, James says we covered this, this was a long time ago. I, it's okay if you've forgotten. I had actually forgotten this too. In uh, James one, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. There's that word again. And desire, James lays, lays this progression. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So desire itself, strictly speaking, isn't the problem. The problem comes when we feed the desire. Or maybe I should say even more specifically or precisely, the the problem can arise in how we feed our desires. See, it's not a problem to, to, to long for a certain relationship. But what happens, at what point have we spent too much time and invested too much of ourselves daydreaming about that relationship, whether it's an actual relationship or one we wish had been. How we feed that desire, you see, it's, it's, when we, um, it's when we click that link, even though we know we shouldn't, it's not going to be healthy for us. It's when we constantly go back and replay that conversation in our mind, the imaginary one, it hasn't happened yet, but it's the one where you think, I wish I had said that, and you tell them off brilliantly in your mind. And you just, you just luxuriate in that conversation. When we let our desires rule us, then James says it, it gives birth to sin, which leads to death. Each person, James says, is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, and desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings Death. Now if, if lust is kind of about desire and uh, desire in our hearts, then gluttony is very closely related. It's basically acting on it, putting it into practice. So you can see, just as, as lust is about more than just something that's sexual, that gluttony is about more than just food. Gluttony is when we pursue any desire to an unhealthy end. Just as what could that be? That could be any number of things. That could be television, that could be social media, it could be exercise. It can be food. Certain relationships could be, in a sense, gluttonous. It could be the um, the third glass of wine when you're already pretty buzzed, and it's been a hard week, and you deserve this. It could be pursuing a promotion or a raise at all costs, even if it means letting your boss believe something that's not completely true, because it will get you ahead. You see. And let's be clear, like, like those things and the desires for them, they're not inherently evil. It's not wrong to want a promotion. It's not wrong to want to eat a good meal. It's not wrong to want to log on to Facebook and, or Instagram or, or whatever and see what, what people are doing. There's nothing inherently wicked about television. But we tend to take those things too far and put them We ask them to do something they can never do in the first place. In a sense, it's all about our hungers. It's about our appetites. But think about hunger for a minute. Hunger is actually a really good, like a really helpful tool, right? What happens when you're hungry? You eat. Each of us has... has, so, So hunger is your body telling you, hey you don't have enough energy, you don't have enough nutrients in your body, you don't have enough calories, you need more. So when you feel hungry, you act on it and you eat. If you've never felt hungry, you'd probably starve to death. The question I guess we're asking is what happens when you feel hungry? And when you feel hungry, where do you reach? Do you reach for the quick fix, the bag of Cheetos, not a knock on Cheetos because I love them too. But when, when you're feeling hungry, do you reach for the bag of Cheetos or do you reach for something that's just a little more balanced, something with some protein and like this will really... Because when you reach for the, the Cheetos, they're delicious and you actually feel better after you've eaten the Cheetos for about half an hour and then you get hungry again. I had, a, I had a, this rare moment... A very helpful realization, just kind of by accident. I don't, I don't usually do this, so let me make that clear. But a couple weeks ago, I had this moment in the afternoon, and I was, I was just getting really hungry, and I was about to reach for this box of Cheez-Its, and, and who doesn't? And, um, and I thought to myself, I just, not yet. And so I put this, I, I gave myself, I said, I'll eat the Cheez-Its after I've eaten like a couple handfuls of carrots. And I ate a handful of carrots, and I think there was some hummus or something. And you know what happened after two handfuls of carrots? wasn't even hungry for the Jesus anymore. See, we're not talking, you can't eliminate hunger from your life. You can't eliminate desire from your life. And God never wants you to eliminate hunger and desire in your life. But we tend so often to try to, to fill those voids with things that can never fill them in the long run. Our appetites are not wrong. But the question God wants us to wrestle through is where do we reach when we're hungry? Where do you reach in those moments of desire? Where do you reach when that person is really, really getting on your last nerve and you you are just desperate to tell somebody else how much that person is getting on your nerves? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I I read this quote like once or twice a year, and it's so, maybe more. It's so good, though. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex And ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. When we think about gluttony and lust and our desires we realize that we let ourselves be far too easily pleased. Now I've mentioned that, that the seven deadly sins have a corresponding list of seven virtues and that the common thinking goes if you just, if you just try to, to do these virtuous things then you can kind of suffocate and stuff down the sins and, and the ones that we would say in, in response to lust it would be something like chastity and the virtue that corresponds with gluttony would be something like abstinence or, or fasting. And those things aren't bad, they're not wrong but, but let's be very clear those things on their own won't work. What what does that say if, if it did? Just starve your desire. Just don't give in to what you want, and then you'll be virtuous. But here's why I know it doesn't work. Because two and a half months into 2022, who is still keeping their New Year's resolutions? All a New Year's resolution is, is to say, well, I'm not going to do this thing that I know I shouldn't do, or I'm going to start doing this thing that I know I should do. And none of us keeps them. Why? Because behavior change alone doesn't work. You can't just change your behavior and expect your identity to change. It's like imagining uh, that approach is, is like saying you have a, you know, you want to turn your part of your yard into a garden, and so the first thing you're going to do is create good soil, and you're going to pluck all the weeds but if you don't plant flowers or if you don't plant tomato plants, you're just going to keep growing back weeds, and you'll spend your whole life plucking out weeds that keep growing back. It's a never-ending battle. G.K. Chesterton said the best way to, starve, or, uh, to get rid of weeds is to plant more flowers. You see, our appetites aren't evil. But God intends for us, or he intends really to use our appetites to draw us closer to himself. Your appetites say, you need something more. And our lust and our gluttony, those things come up when we take those desires that are meant to carry us upward towards God and instead we we let ourselves be seduced by the junk food. And junk food will only leave you hungry again. So the solution isn't to just stop desiring, to stop wanting, to stop, to change what you, the solution isn't to stop eating altogether, you would kill yourself. It's to desire something better, to hunger after something more filling, more life-giving, more joyful. We are far too easily pleased, C.S. Lewis says. those things that we think will fill us up, they always leave us empty, don't they? They always, so so you click that website link and then you have to click another and then you have to click another and you have to, like, it's, it's almost a compulsion, right? You have that next glass of wine and then you feel like you have to have another and then kind of another and then, see, like, it sucks you in. You have that gossipy conversation with someone behind their back and then, and it feels really good to vent right now, I know. But then you want to tell someone else. And then you want to tell someone else. And it doesn't take long to realize before long you, you're burning bridges. See, what lust and gluttony reveal to us is that our desires, if we're not careful, our desires end up consuming us instead of us consuming what we desire. Gehazi In this story, what did he, he craved, he desired, he hungered for Naaman's wealth, and he got it. But he didn't just get that. He ended up getting Naaman's leprosy as well because he wanted something that would never lead to life, and it could only lead to death. We see it nowadays, a classic example. I mean, we all know a, a story of someone who has had an unhealthy appetite for alcohol. Now, let's just be clear, like the Bible never says that drinking alcohol is a sin. In fact, there are a lot of places in the Bible that celebrate drinking alcohol in moderation and within certain parameters and boundaries. In Revelation, it says, uh, it's it's kind of metaphor, but it, it talks about wine flowing at the great wedding banquet, But we all know of someone, and let's be frank, many of us probably know someone personally for whom drinking alcohol becomes an obsession. And eventually, it's not the person consuming alcohol, it's the alcohol that consumes the person. And we've seen it. You see? The problem with lust and the problem with gluttony is not that we consume certain things, but that those things start to consume us. Our lust for food and drink consumes us. Our lust for comfort and ease consumes us. Our lust for quick and easy gratification consumes us. Our lust for power, for control over our lives, for for reputation, for people to think Positive thoughts when they think our name consumes us. This, by the way, is this, by the way, is why. Remember, I said the um, the virtues that correspond with the deadly sins are not necessarily wrong. The virtue that corresponds with gluttony is fasting. This is why fasting is a helpful process, even during Lent, because when you give something up, it exposes your desire. Now, fasting on its own, it won't cure the desire but it will it will exp- it'll diagnose it it will show you <laughs> when you deprive yourself of something in other words you see how much control it really has over your life and the goal of a fast is then to then take that that desire and to bring it to the only one who is enough to fill you up that's jesus christ See, so when we, when we insist on pursuing the unsatisfying desires, as C.S. Lewis, put, Lewis puts it, of, of drink and sex and ambition, it's just because we lack imagination and we don't realize that Jesus is enough, that he'll fill you with more and deeper joy and more lasting joy than any of those things can ever provide. We, we just sang it. Very first hymn we sang, there's a verse, that's a line that says, bread from heaven, bread from heaven, feed me till I want no more, feed me till I want no more. You see? We don't need to quench or suppress our appetites, we just need better appetites. In other words, we need to learn to say that a taste of Jesus is better than a full meal of anything else. Psalm 84 puts it so well. It says, Better, this is David uh, addressing God. He says, Better is one day in your courts, like in your presence, than a thousand anywhere else. And he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be a servant, a no name, nobody in the house of my God than to flourish in the tents of the wicked. See, he understood. It's not about quenching desire. It's about placing it in the right place. When you're hungry, you can reach for the bag of Cheetos. You can. And you'll just be hungry again in 30 minutes. You can go to that website. You can look to that liquid or that pill in that bottle. You can pick up the remote. You can fire up the whatever app on your smartphone, right? You can open that magazine. You can and you'll just be hungry again almost as soon as you close it. Or you can look to something that will truly fill you, the bread of life. See, the question we're confronted with when we realize it that way is this, is is Jesus, not even the things that Jesus gives, not even the benefits, the rewards of following Jesus, but is Jesus enough for you, Jesus alone enough for you? This is how we read it in Psalm 73. This is one of my favorite verses, and it's so centering for me. Psalm 73 ends this way. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, he says, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Is Jesus enough? Just Jesus. If you have Christ and nothing else, you have enough. You'd be surprised at how far that one question can carry you. Is Jesus enough? A lot of us are bringing a lot of baggage with us this morning. We bring baggage with us every every Sunday. We just, life is hard. I get it. Life is hard for us too. Jesus, I'm in a hard place. I'm craving, I'm lusting after this thing. I want this thing. I'm struggling right now to believe you're enough. I know it's true, but I just, I'm not feeling it right now. Jesus, can you show me in this moment that you are the bread from heaven that will feed me till I want no more? Can you show me in this moment that you are living water and whoever drinks of me will never thirst again? You see? That's that's the difference between Jesus and every other thing we look to to fill our desires. Like every other appetite and desire says what? It basically says, you will seek me, you will will do whatever it takes to find me, but it will kill you to find more of me. You will give more and more and more money and time and energy and resources to the point that, that when you finally get as much as you think it'll t- it'll kill you. Jesus, the bread of life, living water is the only object of our desires who says this, I gave my life for you. You see the difference? Every other thing we chase after says it will cost you your life to get me. And Jesus says it cost me my life to get you. That's that's good news. That's good news. And like, You can't be virtuous enough. You can't fast enough. You can't be abstinent enough. You can't be chaste enough. All of these, as we're thinking about sins and virtues, you can't be virtuous enough, but Jesus was virtuous enough. Ask the bread of life Ask the living water, Jesus Christ, to fill you. He will. He promises. He will. Ask him to fill you. He promises you'll never go hungry or thirsty again. Bread from heaven, bread from heaven. Feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. Let's pray. Lord, feed us. Feed us with the spiritual food of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ remind us that virtue comes from following you but but you don't approve of us because we're virtuous you you gave your life for us while we were still sinners help us to be honest with ourselves to take a hard look at at where we pursue things other than you, Not, not so that we can feel bad about ourselves and morose and guilty, but so that we can expose those desires and so that you can heal them, so that we can find life in Christ, so we can find joy in following Jesus. It's in his name and for his sake that we ask these things, amen.